Bitcoin effectively goes, what are the two most valuable things to humans? And if you really distill it down, the two most valuable things to humans are energy and time, because they're the fundamental measurements of value. So, you know, there's nothing really you can accomplish with that time and or energy. So when you distill value down, energy and time become your yardsticks. And what Bitcoin does is it connects energy and time and translates that into a number, a number that you can transfer across the internet anywhere in the world, and that will stay the test of time and not change. Hello and welcome to Bitcoin with Jake. This is a podcast all about people's personal journeys to Bitcoin. I wanted to know more about the people converging on this new form of money. Why do they see value in it? What skills enable their understanding? How is it changing their lives? If you're a founder looking for funding or an investor looking to make investments, then please reach out as I develop my network in the space. Do me a favor and chuck us a five-star rating on whichever app you're using to listen or a like if you're watching it somewhere. As insignificant as this may seem, they help a startup project like this hugely. Lastly, if you have any questions at all, please just reach out. The easiest place to find me is on Twitter at Jake E.S. Woodhouse. Now, I'd like to take a quick moment to talk about our sponsor. Fast Bitcoins are a Bitcoin exchange who you should definitely take a look at next time you're thinking of making a Bitcoin purchase. They're a great team, which for me is always the key to due diligence, whilst their product has a ton of features useful to every Bitcoiner. Check out my episodes with Danny Brewster, the founder CEO, and Nathan Smith, the chief compliance officer, to learn more about the people behind the brand. Thank you to Fast Bitcoins for sponsoring the show. Now, on to today's episode. Today, I'm speaking with Tarek Samor. Hey, Tarek, how are you? Hi, Jake. Great. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for joining. So shout out to, to Dylan Murray, one of the co-founders of Bitcoin Alive, who put us in touch originally. And I look forward to meeting in person at that event later this year when that actually happens. So yeah, we get to, to do a, a little, let's say, a pre-run of our conversation when we meet in person. Uh, so we've got an hour. What I'd love to hear about is your, your journey to Bitcoin. So I always start in kind of the same way, which is you heard about Bitcoin at some point, like where were you, what were you doing at the time and teach me about a bit of your life at that time. Okay, I will. I'd like to start a lot earlier than Bitcoin, if that's okay, just because yeah. why it's relevant. I've had a pretty international life. So I'm originally Palestinian, but I grew up in Dubai. I was born in the UK, in Newcastle, so I'm a majority. Cool. Uh, by birth. Where my mom <laughs> yeah. lives. Yeah, but I grew up in Dubai till I was 16, then we moved to New Zealand, and then I've since traveled quite a bit and I've ended up in Australia. Um, but I think the, the initial inkling, I've always been into tech in general, and so, you know, a bit of a tech head. Not so much investing or finance. I didn't really, like most people, I didn't understand anything about that because it's not really well taught in schools and or anywhere else. But I remember very distinctly in 1994, when I heard about Amazon, the website, amazon.com starting, thinking to myself, I know this is going to change the world. I, just, I can tell, even though the guy was just selling books out of a warehouse at that time, but I didn't know what to do with that information. You know, I sort of kick myself sometimes thinking, you know, maybe I should have, if I knew of it more back then, I was too young to buy shares or to support the enterprise in any way. So I sort of didn't think anything of it. Obviously, Amazon became a big deal. And then, you know, fast forward 10 years later, Tesla starts up. And I had that, in 10 years, I've never had that feeling until I heard about Tesla. And I had this exact same thought. This is going to be disruptive. It's just a better version of the car, you know, and I think this will be very successful. Again, I didn't really have the means or the knowledge to do anything with that information. I just kind of was interesting to me. 
And the third time in my life that I had that feeling was when I heard or started reading about Bitcoin. And that was in 2014. This time I was a bit older, you know, I had a bit more money. I'd been married for two years at that point with a very supportive partner. And I sort of mentioned this to her. I said, you know, I sort of missed Amazon and I missed Tesla. I have this exact feeling about this thing. To me, it was just simply the idea that you could send value borderless without a third party, even at that time was very, very exciting. I got very excited by that, but I was still very immature. You know, I could only think about it from an investment point standpoint because of the Amazons and the Teslas. I didn't quite realize that there was something more to it than that, but I decided with the blessings of my wife to just put a little bit of money in, in Bitcoin and I bought some Bitcoin and I just sort of didn't think about it for a number of years after that. Then when the price started going up, like most people who are not well-versed in finance, I didn't really understand exactly why that was happening, but I started reading about it more and more and understanding it more and more. And so if you fast forward now, you know, eight years later, I think about it in a very different way. It's no longer just an investment thesis. Um, I see it as a solution to a global pervasive problem that is beyond finance and beyond the trivial pursuits of life. This is something revolutionary that I think will improve the world. And so it's taken on a much more meaningful aspect in my life, mainly just because I understand it better than I did way back then. So I heard about it back then. If I could credit anybody with sort of, you know, my ever buying Bitcoin or ever being interested in Bitcoin, it's probably Max Kaiser back when he was on RT News. Because I'd grown up in Dubai, I'd learned very early on to not just watch one source of media information, to try and balance it out by looking at, you know, various other sources. And there was a time back then when things like Al Jazeera and RT News were considered alternative media to the CNNs and the BBCs of the time. Things are very different now, but back then it was very bipolar like that. And so I would just... I'd listen to everybody. And at that point, Max was on RT News as sort of a flamboyant economist commentator. And he'd talk about it a lot. And that's actually what gave me the courage and the understanding to you know just stick with it for now. Wow. So many things I'd like to draw on from that. So just one initial point is a real feeling of similarity between you and I. So I was lucky to buy some Bitcoin in 2015. And at the time I was it doesn't matter the whole story for it, but it's amazing how over those years, since 2014, 15, at the time it was a fairly small amount of money, which has now grown into a large amount of money. And as that percentage of your net wealth has kind of altered in, in size, like between, you know, real estate or whatever else you might also own, if you're lucky to, it's grown in the brain capacity that it's also taking. And what was once a kind of speculative thing is so much more than that now so that resonates a lot with me what, yeah, what i'd love to do oh go on please please sorry i mean it, it's part of the game theory of how the thing actually works it lives at this intersection between finance and general goodness and it sort of lives in that little sweet spot between the two and most of us are not used to that idea because generally finance is not perceived as a force for good in general because it hasn't been in the last few yes. decades yeah. And so it gets its hooks into you with the selfish aspect of your nature, where you want to buy something and you want to go up in price. Number <laughs> of but then eventually it changes you. And I mean, Kaiser talks about this a lot, how it changes your outlook. And, it, and it's so true, isn't it? When one thinks that if you and I can resonate over that same process, it makes sense that other people that buy just today will feel similar to this in five years time, which is yet another reason to think that it's very valuable in the future versus prices of today. Where I wanted to go though, Tarek, so Palestine to the UK, to Dubai, to New Zealand, how on earth did you end up going on that journey? And 
what was yeah. the the process for doing that? And we'll probably get to this later, but one of the best books I've read in the last year was Check Your Financial Privilege by Alex Gladstein. And there's an excellent section on Palestine in that, which frankly, I'm no expert in. So I'm taking it as very literal, like as it's correct. It could be completely wrong. I have no idea, but it seemed to make sense. And so I'd love to see where your views are as a, as a Palestinian and how Bitcoin might help what's happening there. But first, like, teach me about how you ended up living all those countries. Yeah, I mean, I wish I could say it's unique for somebody of Palestinian origin to move around a lot, but it's it's sort of a fairly common story for is it okay. Palestinians who left or who you know whose parents left. So I've never been to Palestine. I've never seen it. Wow. I've never been to Israel. I was born in Newcastle, and my parents were Palestinian refugees from the 1948. They grew up in, initially in refugee camps in Lebanon, and then eventually. My mother's side of the family was more wealthy, so they sort of bought their way out, whereas my dad basically grew up in a refugee camp through his teenage years. Wow. Once they got to university age, they sort of tried to find ways to go to university. My dad ended up in Egypt. My mother went to the American University in Beirut. So they both studied. They both became healthcare workers, and they met in the UAE. So at that time, the UAE or Dubai and Sharjah were sort of open for business and recruiting professionals, healthcare professionals and otherwise. And it was a tremendous opportunity for people of Palestinian origin who didn't actually have a, a passport or a country that they could call home to actually go and make a life. Mm-hmm. So my parents moved to the UAE to make a life, and the UAE was very good to them in that sense. Um, it's not the fairest place in the world, but you know, at the time in the 80s when they moved there, it was a land of opportunity. And so my dad was studying in Newcastle, and that's why I was born there. So he was sort of doing some extra training. And so I was born in the UK. I was lucky enough to have a, have a British passport since then. But I grew up in the UAE till I was 16. Okay. Once I got to 16 and it was time for me to go to university, at the time, there weren't really any major universities in the UAE. So I had to go somewhere else for university. At the same time, my parents still didn't have a passport. So, you know, they were in their 50s without a nationality. They just just had a refugee document. Wow. And so they were kind of starting to get worried that once they approached retirement, they wouldn't have anywhere to live because UAE works on work visa basis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they decided, you know, we'll just all move somewhere. And at the time, New Zealand was looking for skilled immigrants. So my parents and myself and my brother and sister moved to New Zealand. Wow. Uh, I went to university and they basically lived there and got citizenship and became Kiwis. So how did I end up in Australia? Well, I did my medical and surgical training in New Zealand um, for my specialty, bowel cancer and cortical surgery. It's a binational scheme. So you move around between New Zealand and Australia. So I did two years of training in Australia and I ended up settling in Adelaide. So it seems like a lot of movement. I did spend a year in Houston just for a bit of extra, but it's actually fairly typical of a sort of a second generation Palestinian person to have that kind of life. How amazing. Thank you for sharing that. It's fascinating what people do with their lives. I think that's probably the one thing that's resonated with the most of doing this podcast. It's just extraordinary, the kind of challenges people overcome, where they go, what they do. And so on that, as a family, then going through that process, what were some of the challenges that you faced and Look, you know, I'll, what, I'll what motivated you to get into medicine? Yeah, I mean, I've had a very privileged life. I, I, I don't want to pretend like I had any hardship, really. My parents suffered quite a bit of hardship in their lives growing up, but I'm very fortunate that by the time I was conscious and around that they'd sorted things out. Um, but it did give me a bit of a unique perspective on you know international relations and not quite how money works, but I did have an understanding early on that there is a bit of, there's an underlying fakeness to it all where you just cross a border and suddenly things change for no apparent reason. 
Yeah. And, you know, when you're young, you don't think about it at all. But it became really clear to me that the system was a certain way for a reason. And it might be that that reason has now gone, given that we're more global in our outlook. And some of us have lived in many different countries mm -hmm. and can see that the plight and the challenges and the personalities and the, the wishes and the wants of everybody in every country are identical. So yeah. what's the point of having segregated forms of trade and segregated money it really doesn't actually make sense in the modern day. So it gave me that unique perspective. I don't have a sense of nationalism to any one nation or country. I've never had that because I've spent a lot of time in a lot of countries. That has pros and cons, you know. It's sort of not nice to when you watch the Olympics or something to not know which team to cheer for. So <laughs> like, I don't have a I don't have a, a clan as such. So I, I sort of maybe I miss that a bit. But it does allow me to sort of rise above that in some ways and see that it's actually everyone's pretty much the same, just with slightly different uh, surroundings, you know. But it's a really important insight because a hundred years ago, no one did travel, mm. not in the same way they do today. And so central banking really in its modern form got going roughly a century ago. Mm. And the, the ability of, you know, spending time within different nation states, and as, as you quite rightly point out, like, Basically, everyone wants to earn a living to put food on the table and, if they can, use their additional productivity to get ahead in some way. It's the self-interest of humans, the competition, the game. It's, you know, who can win in some senses. But everyone's trying to do the same thing. It doesn't matter which continent or country you grew up in. So why are all these different monies in existence? And that yeah. becomes so much more obvious when you're able to easily transfer to each different place. But 100 years ago, you wouldn't have. So it's not as easy to, to kind of point out that difference, is it? I've not thought about that before. That's really cool. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm not a conspiracy theorist in any way. I don't really believe um, fundamentally that there's this underlying evil force that's controlling everything. Mm. I do think that I'm a scientist by nature as well and by profession. I do think there are significant human biases in all forms of human endeavor, and finance is one of those. I also believe that in systems design, you know, so if you design a system with the correct or noble incentives, then you will get better outcomes. If you design a system that's open to interpretation and flawed in any way, then the biases tend to add up and you end up with an outcome that's not what you intended. Okay. Um, I think the fiat currency system served a really important purpose when it was created. Basically, the early stages of transportability, you know, couldn't yep. drag bars of gold around or divide them up. And so we, we needed a more portable version of that. I think that the system has significant flaws, particularly when applied in the modern day. Just like anything that was invented 100 years ago that you apply today, it doesn't work as well. And unfortunately, because we're dealing with money, because there are weaknesses in the system, those weaknesses get exploited. And yeah. they tend to get exploited in a way that has a negative impact on a proportion of the global population. Not because any one person is particularly evil or bad, but just because the system is open to that. And eventually, that's what ends up happening. It's almost rational in that sense. So perhaps you could give me another example then. So when you say from a scientist perspective, when you look at system design, how does that work? And then how do you map that onto looking at something like fiat currency? Okay, well, let's look at something like half of my life is academic work and the other half is surgery. So the academic part of my life, the way it relates to surgery is we try and minimize bias in decision making because as a human being, when you're faced with a major decision, like do you offer somebody an operation or not? A lot of things go into that. Some yeah. of it's knowledge and some of it is bias, my own bias to not want to let somebody die or whatever yes. it may be. Wow. 
So perhaps that'd so, be like your your emotion is kind of coming into things at some point, maybe not. Hundred percent, which yeah. you cannot remove that completely because that's part of the interaction. So you know, you're speaking to a real patient who has their own biases and their own values and their own needs. So you have to kind of keep that human factor at the forefront. But at the same time, when a patient asks you, you know, what are my chances of surviving this operation? You have to be able to give them an objective answer, free of bias, right? So the academic side of my practice relates to trying to get to that point, the emotionless objective answer, the truth, as it yeah. may be. So, you know, recently we went through a COVID pandemic, but, you know, a smaller version of that is some of the op- treatments that we offer in terms of surgery. Okay. It's not so much that there are people that set out to, you know, deliver bad treatment to patients. It's more that when you do studies looking at certain drugs or certain operations, when you design the study to answer your question, does this drug work? Does this operation work? Most studies and most science in general has weaknesses. They're fundamentally flawed in various ways. And your job as an academic person is to try and minimize the human bias and try and get the answer as objectively as possible. And there are various ways you can do that. For example, you can blind the investigator so that I don't know who had the operation who didn't when I decide if it worked or not. That's one simple example. And the problem with economics is that it's not a real science in my view. It is a pseudoscience in that there isn't a lot of objective analysis, a scientific analysis of what's actually going on. There's a lot of subjective interpretation. You know, I think inflation is gonna is gonna be bad next quarter. That has no real scientific rigor whatsoever. That's just emotion and bias. And as a result, a lot of the decisions that are made are very subjective and fundamentally very flawed. And I think that comes into sharp focus when you look at something like Bitcoin versus something like the US dollar. The tokenomics of the US dollar are very human based. They're not very rational nor objective necessarily. They're subjective. Some dude decides one day that if they increase the interest rate by this much or not by this much or print this much money or not this much money, that that probably is going to work based on their experience and their human experience. There's no actual scientific rigor to their practice, right? As opposed to something like Bitcoin, which is very much, I see that as a standard unit of measurement, kind of like meters or grams. You know, it provides a fixed anchor point that is mathematically based and somehow connected to energy and time and not to human interpretation anymore. It was invented by a human or discovered by a human, whichever you prefer, but that's the same as meters being invented or discovered by humans. You know, that's not to say that the, the standard unit of length or weight is not open to human interpretation. It's fixed. It was invented and designed by humans to achieve a certain purpose. And I see Bitcoin in the same light. And I reject the tokenomics of fiat today, even though they served a very useful purpose before we had Bitcoin. Today, they seem to be, you know, just a crappier version of what could be possible with Bitcoin. Yeah, wow. I mean, fascinating. It gets so profound, this conversation, very fast, doesn't it? And I touched on this just before we click record, but it always is, is humbling in many ways how people have put in a huge amount of work to become experts in certain areas in life to earn value. So, you know, you, in your case, you're a surgeon, highly, highly skilled role to have got to, but that equips you with a bunch of lenses on different things. And so you talk about, you know, rigor and trying to be objective as possible, and then you reapply it to this new thing called Bitcoin, and it helps you understand what it is in a way that actually there's not many people like you in the world 
that had done that before and therefore understood it. And so this conversation helps to teach me, helps to teach anyone else that's out there why you see value in it. It's fantastic. And to take that one step further, so this whole concept of measurement, when you, you know, you read some of these things and you suddenly realize that Bitcoin is actually a new clock. It's like, oh my God, what, what are you talking about? Or equally some articles when, I mean, I always think of Robert Breedlove's The Number Zero, but like zero didn't exist at some stage. Like what? Like you don't yeah, really think about these things. Team. So that's 100% true. So, so, so take me a bit further through that whole like measurement thing. Why do you see it as a, as a form of measurement and how is that going to change things? In the well, future? I mean, humans have to find a way to measure value, right? And find a way to translate value across time and space. Michael Sarah okay. talks about this a lot as well. Yeah. So, you know, how do I convey that information to somebody living a thousand kilometers away in a hundred years from today, that this was worth X amount today? And today, the way we do that at the moment is we allocated a dollar measurement or whatever it is in your local fiat currency. But let's just say for the sake of argument, the US dollar. The problem with that is that the measurement is moving beneath your feet. And so one dollar today is worth something else tomorrow or next quarter more specifically. And as a result of that, it is very hard to transmit that information across time and space, right? Because the space issue is, you, you know, other countries have a different unit of account or a different unit of measurement. And in a hundred years, you don't know what the US dollar is gonna be worth. Chances are it's gonna be lower, but you don't know exactly how much lower. And that creates a huge conundrum in terms of your ability to use that information in a scientifically sound, meaningful way, right? It would not be useful in any scientific experiment, for example. It would not be useful because it's not reliable enough, right? And that problem, in my view, has been solved by Bitcoin. How, how did Bitcoin solve that problem? Well, Bitcoin effectively goes, what are the two most valuable things to humans? And if you really distill it down, the two most valuable things to humans are energy and time because they're the fundamental measurements of value. So... You know, there's nothing really you can accomplish with that time and or energy. So when you distill value down, energy and time become your yardsticks. And what Bitcoin does is it connects energy and time and translates that into a number, a number that you can transfer across the internet anywhere in the world, and that will stay the test of time and not change across time. And so it links value, which, you know, most humans would agree that energy is valuable and time is valuable. And if you distill that down into a, a, a clear measurement that is not going to change day by day or location by location, in other words, space and time, then you've solved the problem of having a unit to measure value. Um, that's how I see it. And I think that is a revolutionary discovery that we have not had before. We've had surrogates before. You know, gold is a surrogate. Fiat is a surrogate, a poor surrogate. But we've not had an actual scientifically sound surrogate, you know, something that I can hang my hat on as a scientist and say, I believe this is true. Now, humans can manipulate it and humans will manipulate it until such time that the manipulatable elements are gone, which hopefully will happen in the next coming years. And so I think that's incumbent upon us, that second part of it. It's just amazing to hear you talk about it like this. I love it. It's, it's an amazing invention that, or discovery, however you want to look at it, that we're very, very lucky to be part of at this stage in its process. Something I'd like to draw back to you, Tarek, that you mentioned at the start of the conversation was essentially this idea of spotting disruption. And so you saw Amazon, 
you kind of felt like it was a big deal, but didn't act on it per se. And then you saw Tesla didn't act on it. And then Bitcoin comes along and you've, you've done something about it, but and it's grown more and more important to you over that time. Could you delve a little more into like what that feeling really was? Like, how did you know that this something's up here and I've got to look into it? Yeah, I think it was just the idea that this is just a better way to do things. And one thing you could say about humans is that when when there is a disruptive discovery of some kind, it does tend to become pervasive. Whether the, the legacy systems try to stop it or not, it's very hard to argue with a major disruptive invention. So, you know, you could go all the way back to fire and the wheel. You know, I'm pretty sure when the wheel was invented, there were people around saying, I'm not sure we need this thing, you know, uh, similar yeah, with- There would have been. Yeah, yeah, similar with 100%. The, the internet. You know, I remember the internet starting you know, I'm old enough that I can remember when I first experienced the internet, you know. Um, the reason I bring up Amazon and Tesla is because they're sort of more recent examples that many of us still remember. But there are plenty of examples like that throughout history where someone comes up with an idea. It's just simply a better way of delivering whatever it is they're trying to deliver. So I remember Jeff Bezos in that photo, you know, in his office with the Amazon spray painting thing. But the issue really was that now that we have the internet, wouldn't it be better to just have a shop that never closes and they deliver books to your door? At the time, it was just books. But to me, I could just see that there was no reason to have a bookstore anymore. Like, it just didn't make sense to have a bookstore anymore to me. Yeah. Yeah. Now, that might seem impassionate and not human, you know, because humans like walking around a bookstore and the idea of having your well, local... They think they like it. Yeah. yeah. But from a scientific perspective, from an objective perspective, it makes the bookstore redundant on, on very basic criteria like choice, price, yeah. you know, economies of scale, yeah. these sort of hard things. And whether we like it or not, we can keep our human element. You know, people still listen to records, for example, right? But if you had a choice between an AVI or MP3 file being delivered wirelessly on tap or having to buy a record, most people these days would stream their music, right? Yeah. If you love records and you like the sensation of them, great. You can still have it, but the superior technology will always take hold sooner or later. Mm. And for me, Amazon and Tesla were examples of that in recent history where somebody came up with an idea that was more relevant to the modern day and what was acceptable in the modern day and available. And that idea for me, even early on, when you first hear of the idea, it's really obvious that this idea sooner or later will become pervasive. Mm -hmm. And I think Bitcoin is another one of them. I think we're at the stage now where probably where Amazon was after their first major collapse. I think it does trivialize Bitcoin a bit to compare it to companies. So yeah. I'm a bit cautious about that aspect. It is not that. Bitcoin is more akin to electricity or fire yeah. or, or wheel. Yeah. Because it does, it's not a company. It doesn't have an owner. It yeah. doesn't have heirs, right? But it is a, it's, a, it's a human discovery and it, it is a disruptive human discovery akin to selling stuff online versus bookshops. And to talk specifically about the, the problem that Bitcoin solves, like when you say it was just really obvious to you that this was going to be a better way of doing things, what's the kind of predominant use case you had in mind when you say that? Yeah, well, I mean, that view has evolved dramatically, but my early view when I first heard about it was this idea that you could send value to someone over the internet for free, essentially, without needing a bank. Yeah. You know, having traveled between many countries, I sort of understood... I didn't understand finance, but I understood that the banking sector was 
extremely clunky. It was the equivalent of a bookstore. Yeah. And Bitcoin was the equivalent of Amazon.com. In my mind, when I first heard about it, uh, that was my initial view. My view has changed a lot since then, because obviously since then, we've now got other means of transferring money online, such as PayPal and Venmo and everything else. Yeah. So they solved that issue of you know, money transfer across time and space. You still need a bank account in most places, but at least the instantaneous transfer of money, that problem has been addressed now. Yeah. But I think what I've grown to understand is that the money that's being transferred is unreliable. Mm. And it's unreliable for many reasons, particularly inter-border currency exchanges and the devaluation of even the strongest currencies over time. Yeah, so the cracks have appeared in the traditional financial system that mean that you know payments aren't the problem that we're solving here. It's the actual, it's the fucking money, honey, you know? <laughs> it's the money, it's the failure of the current system in the modern day. Like I said, I think it served the purpose, but that purpose has been replaced. I think. Okay, cool. So I usually reserve audience questions till later in the conversation, but this is very relevant and it's where I would like to take the conversation. So John O. Spears says, ask him why there aren't more doctors and nurses in Bitcoin yet. Seems to be the ideal savings vehicle for intelligent, low time preference types. Yeah, let me, just, let me just preface that just quickly with what I'd love to understand a bit more about is like what life's like as a surgeon and the healthcare industry in general, but we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. What's the story with Bitcoin in the kind of medical world, shall yeah, we say? I've thought about this a lot because I feel like I have a responsibility and a vested interest that people who deserve wealth because they provide a service to society should be disproportionately rewarded for that service. And the way the fiat system works is, is the opposite of that. It's the people closest to the spigot or the closest to the money printer that get rewarded regardless of their service to society. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, I've been going on this sort of rampage with my colleagues and friends and people in the healthcare industry to kind of try and explain to people, <laughs> you know, I, I would like them to get onto the train earlier than, than others because I think they deserve it. And I have a vested interest in their well-being, you know. But more so than that, as a doctor, I think I have a responsibility as well to be a champion of local and global health. And I guess we'll get into the healthcare benefits yep. later. That's cool. As far as why doctors and nurses aren't as into Bitcoin as you might think, the answer to that is pretty simple. They are, well, I guess it's a two-part answer. One is they're busy and they're busy providing a service to society, largely. Yeah. And as a result, they tend to be relatively blind to the underlying problems that we experience with finance and central banking and everything else. They, they simply aren't in that world. So mm -hmm. they very much still believe that what you're supposed to do is lock up money in savings, superannuation and houses, yep. because they believe that that is the way to preserve their wealth because history has taught them that, or their parents have taught them that they haven't actually most, the, the average surgeon or the average nurse has not actually sat down and spent time or have, or nobody rather has explained to them how central banking actually works and what the issues with it are. So they believe the hype that they hear on the news largely. Yeah. yeah. So that's one element. It's, they're not in the field. They're busy. They're focused on working out how to treat the next patient. So that's the first thing. The second element is their personalities. You know, these people got into their jobs for a reason, not everybody, but mostly, right? And the reason they got into that job or that profession fundamentally is because they're interested and they want to help people. They don't want to help people indirectly or 
somehow start a business or a company and hire people and improve the economy. What they want to do is find somebody sick, do something and make them better, right? And people who have that kind of personality, which is the vast majority of doctors and nurses, tend to be very altruistic and very and generally quite trusting. So they have no reason to go, you know what, the money's failed. We need a better money. They're not naturally inclined to be distrustful of the system around them because that's not how their brain actually works most of the time. What they're trying to do is go, I want to help people in need. Mm. And they help people in need and they focus on that. So it's a combination of the personality types. They're not very tech savvy. They're not very finance savvy. um, And they're too busy to care about that stuff. And so as a result, they really don't have the time or energy to dedicate to something like Bitcoin, unfortunately. And and to to chime on that a bit, that's an excellent explanation. Thank you. It's actually not too dissimilar with other people that I see that are important parts of this kind of orange pilling process, which is actually business owners. So a business owner is generally fucking busy, and their entire balance sheet and their entire you know incoming outgoing, it's all in dollars or whatever the local fiat currency is. They don't have time to study the history of central banking and understand that they're getting rug pulled on an annual basis and. Obviously, they understand inflation is a problem because they're managing supply chains and there's all these issues that start to come about when it comes to debt and exposure and risk and all this stuff. But there's a lot of people out there in the world that if they had the time to research what was going on with their money, probably would make different decisions to what they currently do. They just haven't done it yet. They might be slightly different personality types, I admit, but it really is interesting to think, okay, they're they're all people that are highly intelligent, but they just haven't looked yet. And what does that mean for the Bitcoin price? At some point in the future, they're going to go, fuck me, can you tell me about this stuff? Because I know I'm getting absolutely rimmed here and I need some help. I, I belong to a Facebook group called Doctors into Bitcoin. But there's, you know, in, in Australia, there's about 2,200 members now. No way. Yeah. I mean, really? Wow. That's, unfortunately, despite the name, there's a lot of shit going that goes on as well. Yeah. So, Hard um, to ignore. Yeah. Well, they haven't quite, you know, I'm probably the biggest Bitcoin maxi in that group by by a long shot. I try not to be a toxic one if I can avoid it, because yeah. I, I, again, I, I fundamentally believe that shitcoiners' hearts are in the right place, and most of them are trying to do what they believe is the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just we have disagreements and differences about what the path forward really should be. And that comes down to personality types and also comes down to time time spent in the game. I did a bit of shitcoining myself for a long time yep. until I realized what I was doing wrong. And I think a yep. lot of Bitcoiners will give you that story where they, they got into Bitcoin initially, they played around with a whole bunch of other stuff. And given enough time, they realized that all the other stuff is simply a representation of the fiat system, nothing more. And so you end up getting spat out the other end as a Bitcoin maximalist. And... A lot of my colleagues, because they've been in it for a much shorter time, have not quite taken that final step. Yeah. And I think as Bitcoiners, we do have to be understanding of that because the alternative is, I don't believe in the alternative, which is just to kind of yell at everybody until they see the light on their own. Yeah. <laughs> Even though that might be considered proof of work, but honey is better than vinegar. No, saying. I completely agree. I mean, there's no doubt I'm more of a libertarian as a result of becoming interested in owning Bitcoin, but I'm not going to sit on an anonymous account on Twitter, just hassling people all day long. It's like, if you want to learn about Bitcoin, give me a call. I'm using my real name. This is what I've done. Yes, if I end up in the gulag, then that's on me. But it's a case of, you know, this is a really important thing. I want to teach people about it if I can. How interesting. And so on that doctors interested in Bitcoin group, 
I imagine most of them think with that very scientific approach that you've already talked us through. You won't have had time to speak to all 2,000 of them, I'm sure, but what, what happens when you go and kind of pose questions to them about that? You say, okay, well, I believe that this is objective truth and it's a form of measurement that will be relied upon 100 years from now. Can you say that of XYZ shitcoin? How does that conversation play out? Yeah, so I do have a lot of discussions about that. I believe in completely open dialogue and I, um, I am pretty challenging on the group and, and I accept the challenges in return openly with, and with respect. Um, most of them sort of believe the whole Ethereum thing of like, you know, this is just a better version. You know, it, it's more capable. It can do more, better for the environment, all the usual nonsense. Yeah. That, that yeah. Makes because they haven't, they still haven't necessarily understood the fundamental value proposition in a fixed protocol that's tied to energy, they're still living in a mindset where they still translate everything to US dollars. So, you know, yeah. and historically, their main thing that they always go back to is the price of Ethereum historically has gone up more than Bitcoin, therefore it must have more value than Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And that's because they've only been in it for a shorter period of time. You know, most of us are fairly confident that measured over a much longer period of time, all of these metrics, all of these models will be destroyed, right? Because yeah. We're not attempting to replace Facebook and Google. What we're attempting to replace is the basis of allocating value, full stop. And if that thesis comes true, and I don't think there's a guarantee that that comes true. I just think it's very likely because superior technology tends to rise to the top. We could still screw it up. And by we, I mean humans. And I think that's why podcasts like this are important is to continue to advocate for not screwing it up and mm -hmm. to think, look, we have an opportunity here, let's take it. And that's my position with them all the time. I explain that argument a lot, but most of them are not quite ready to hear it yet, is what okay. I would say. Because they're thinking in terms of Australian dollar still. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they look at Bitcoin's price dropping in its usual cycles and they go, oh, you see, it wasn't what you said it was going to be. And I was <laughs> like, okay, just wait a bit longer. You yeah. know, give it more time. time. Bye, brother. Yeah, yeah. So, but then they go, why don't we buy Ethereum? We might go up more when, when the boom comes, you know? So... We have to get away from this cost idea because, you know, you could take more risk and get more reward. That's how capital markets work. I think we need to stop worrying about that and focus on this underlying idea that our current monetary system is not fit for purpose. We require it to be replaced by something more objective and more global and more fair. And we have yet to come up with a better idea than Bitcoin in that regard. Yeah, I'm into that. And yeah. another great question that I love from this space and this rabbit hole is just what is money? And right. someone who's someone who's proposing Ethereum it just doesn't make sense, mate. Like that's not going to be the future of money, in my opinion. And they will argue differently, and that's okay. But the fun part being is you just go, do you know what? I'm okay. I'm going to make my decisions. I'm going off this way. You can do your thing, and we'll see what happens. And that's fine. And you become almost quite. I have an additional level of confidence. It's, it, it, it happens. It pervades through you in a strange way. And it's what they talk about in theory being is you have a better grip on the future because you can now save again more effectively. And it really does like make you feel different, doesn't it? Well, it does. I mean, in our part of the world, if you talk about the wealthy Western world, uh, for the longest time, people saved in houses. I mean, they don't look at it like that. They talk about real estate investing, but you know, anybody who tells you houses always go up in price, what they're really saying to you is that housing in the West is better money than currency, than fiat. That's what they're doing. That's what we've done. That's what I've done. You know, historically, that's what everybody tells you to do is you buy more houses, buy more houses. <laughs> and the reason you keep buying houses, not because houses are 
good investment, it's because your money is a crap investment, your current yeah. money that you're using, which is fiat. And so what you're doing is you're saving in houses. Now that's fundamentally flawed on so many levels because houses are not transportable, they're not divisible. And the worst aspect is you're screwing up the social aspect of housing for the rest of your own society. I lived through that acutely in New Zealand when I was between the ages of 16 till 30 something. I was in New Zealand in Auckland city. Auckland's housing prices just became astronomically high and they still are. Wow. You know, they're sort of, they dwarf it, the, 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 the median wage is so much lower than the price of a house in Auckland that it's, it's honestly a joke because it's a completely open capitalist market, open to anybody in the world. And as a result, the house prices were just unsustainable. And it was part of the reason why I left New Zealand. So, you know, what people in New Zealand who are sitting on their houses don't understand is that they're losing surgeons because of the housing market. Okay. We left New Zealand to come to Adelaide because the housing market here was a bit more fair. That was yep. one of the main drivers. Interesting. And, and so there's all sorts of social consequences that break down and that are poorly understood when you start replacing your currency with something like houses, which is a better money, or even the stock markets, you know, diversified portfolio, quote unquote, that can't lose. The only reason something risky like stocks can't lose is because your current money is so bad that even investing in a random basket of high-performing stocks will always win against your money. And I think what Bitcoin offers is a solution to that, a remedy to that, where houses return to their natural state. They do have value, but they don't have value as money anymore, hopefully in the future. Yeah, the great definancialization is a, a wonderful sure. subject that comes out of this, where yeah. everything around us is being used as money because the money is actually so bad at its job. But Bitcoin right. completely changes that. What I'd like to do, Tarek, is take us back to a couple of comments you made earlier. And actually, you're the third surgeon I've had on the podcast. I, I can't believe so, that. Yeah, yeah shout out. So Jason Sansone came on and also Jack Cruz. And one of the things that's really obvious when speaking to gentlemen like yourself and them is you're surgeons. You're really fucking good at what you do. In Jason's case in particular, he got interested in value investing. And so he was playing on the stock market and he realized that he couldn't find a single company that represented value. And he ended up getting in touch with Greg Foss. And he's actually one of the guys that helped set up the Looking Glass education stuff with Daz B. I don't know if you've come across those guys, but the point is, is when you're busy being a surgeon, you don't have time to trade stocks. Like what do you do with your money? And so there's this, there's this great solution to this busy daily life of people's that Bitcoin represents a way of saving. I think that's really exciting for people such as yourselves. You go, okay, well, I can deliver value in what I'm really good at and what surplus to my requirements I can now save again. And that's an incredibly powerful tool for society that didn't previously exist. Now, what I'd love to go into though, Tarek, is you mentioned local and global health. So let's unpack that for a bit. What do you mean by that? Okay, so we covered saving and we covered the dramatic escalation in housing prices. When you look at healthcare prices, not healthcare expenditure, but healthcare prices, how much does it cost to have a, a fully staffed hospital bed in Adelaide or in Sydney or anywhere else? No idea. Well, that number is measurable and it's going up at a faster rate than housing prices. Okay. Wow. And, and the reason that's really important is, and the reason that's relevant is, it is a harder money than houses. Why is that? It's because it's harder to create. So, I mean, the way the hard money idea works, the safety- It's more scarce, essentially. It's yeah. more scarce and harder to make, right? Yeah. 
it's easier to build a house than it is to build a hospital. It's easier to build an apartment room than it is to build a hospital bed because the hospital bed requires more advanced resourcing and more advanced personnel to staff it. Okay. So when you look at inflation and healthcare costs, that is dramatically outstripping in the West, dramatically outstripping CPI and wage growth and GDP, right? So if you think housing is a problem, right, in terms of um, the inflation and house prices, healthcare is an even bigger problem, right? Yeah. And one of the issues we have, I mean, I think the main issue we have, having worked in many different health systems in the US and New Zealand and here, is that the increase in expenditure on healthcare, so the amount that the government and the private sector allocates to healthcare, increases, say in Australia, roughly two to three percent a year. Okay. The reason it increases two to three percent a year is that it's supposed to keep up with CPI and it's supposed to keep up with population growth. Because those are those are the two supposedly the two variables that determine demand. So the issue, though, is that imagine if you increased your ability to buy a house by the amount of CPI when the house price was increasing 10 to 20 percent a year. Right mm. now, translate that to the healthcare bed or the healthcare dollar. So we're increasing our expenditure on healthcare two to three percent a year. Meanwhile, the cost of healthcare is going up 20 percent. Wow. Right. And this is since 1971, but more acutely in the last few years. And that creates a fundamental issue where it appears like you're spending more on healthcare. Right. But yet all your outcomes are getting worse. Your bed pressures are getting worse. Your ambulance ramping is getting worse. Your surgical waiting lists are getting dramatically worse in every state and in every country wow. because your dollar is not going far enough. It's lagging significantly behind how much it costs to pay for those services. Yeah. Right. And if we don't deal with this problem, if we don't at least acknowledge it, which we don't at the moment, then you can continue to expect the outcomes to get worse and worse. Because there's no way to pay for more with less, right? And so I think for me, it's an, in terms of local health, there's an educational gap with regards to healthcare expenditure that no manager, I can tell you, in any hospital in this country understands. So when you speak to the managers, they just think, well, our budget's a bit higher next year. We should be able to do more stuff. That would be true if the costs were fixed, but the costs are not fixed yeah. for the reasons we outlined before. How can any hospital manager, any surgeon, any government official hope to tailor their expenditure to the need when they don't even understand the simple fact that the inflation in healthcare costs is a major problem and dramatically outstripping any chance they have to pay for it, and that that is likely to continue for the coming years. And to me, the Bitcoin thing comes in in this discussion because it is a way to get ahead of the inflation in the monetary supply, which is the underlying driving factor for the increase in costs of healthcare. Okay. And so do you see Bitcoin in that sense, it's a purchasing power protection mechanism for, you know, and, and best done over a four-year cycle. Like the short-term volatility is a problem when it comes to balancing books on a 12-monthly basis. But well, no, is it something that you advocate? Before, no, there's a step before that, which is measuring the cost of things. So, you know, going okay. back to discussion you know if you ask the hospital manager in any state in australia if you ask them to explain why the cost of delivering their service has gone up by 20 percent over the last year they can't tell you the answer to that. they just think it's an aging population or you know it's it's the inflation that we all know and love and it just happened to be a bad year they don't really understand the fundamental underlying problem of why 
they're unable to deliver services at an increasing rate every year. They don't know why. So before we start talking about actually purchasing Bitcoin and preserving your purchasing power, which is a few years on a government level, is probably a few years away. Yeah. I think there's an earlier question, which is how do you even measure how much something is worth when your money supply is so fundamentally flawed yeah. and manipulated? Do you advocate measuring in Bitcoin then all of these costings? Well, or I think Bitcoin can be used as an explainer. So people yeah. understand that the issue is dilution in the money supply. That yeah. is the underlying issue. And it also explains the principle of hard money. What's hard money and what's soft money? Yeah. The average manager or the average human, average Australian, average surgeon, when you say what is money, they'll tell you about currency, not about money. Yeah. Because in their mind, money is the Australian dollar, not a hard asset. Yeah. You know? They understand that houses go up in price a lot. And they know that that's caused by inflation, but they also think that that's caused by supply and demand. So they think that the demand for housing is so high that the price is always going to go up. And I think one good way to throw that out the window is to say, well, during the COVID lockdowns in Melbourne, for example, the house prices went up in Melbourne. Mm. So there was no immigration. There's very, very little tourism. It's a major city in Australia. Nobody was buying houses. The demand for houses was not high. In fact, people in Melbourne were leaving Melbourne at the time mm -hmm. because of the strictness of the lockdowns. But the house prices went up 10 to 20% in most areas. So yeah. why did that happen? Was it demand? Was it supply? It was simply the fact that the government printed a shitload of money in a very short period of time. Yeah. That's all it was. And so I tend to like to use Bitcoin as a way to explain the ailings of the current financial system to go... Yeah. You know, maybe there's a better way to do this. There's a better way to run this system, to measure value. Because if we continue to measure value, say, in healthcare, in a, in, in a way where we don't understand that one is inflating at a much faster rate than the other, I think we'll continue to lose the game and our healthcare outcomes will continue to get worse. Now, then comes the next question. What do you do about it? That's a much more difficult question. Of course. Yeah. Um, but I think fundamentally what you should do about it, what we should do about it, what we should advocate to do about it, is to start measuring things using a different system and start buying things and accumulating things using a different system. But I'm not naive enough to think that'll happen in the short term. So yeah. I, mean, I won't say that that's, we're going to start denominating healthcare dollars in Bitcoin in the next year or, or more. I doubt that very much. And so what can you actually control? So within your small ecosystem that is you know your individual walk to work and whatever you might do in, in the day-to-day -day, the team that you run the patients that you come into contact with is there anything that you can actually action to to make a change do you think yeah i think it starts at a grassroots level of orange pilling so i think you start small and you grow and so i talk to everybody that i can about bitcoin that wants to listen i explain to them how it works i put it in sharp contrast to our current system and in ways that they can understand. Um, and I basically issue a call to action. I say, look, just read about this thing. Try to understand what I've spoken to you about with regards to the healthcare funding, why that's not working, uh -huh. and why in the future there may be a better system. We may just be, you know, Amazon 1.0 or, you know, the first days of the internet where you could just open a chat box and talk to a random person. Mm. We're probably at that point now. There is no reason to think that in 10, 20, 30, 40 years, the globe will be on a Bitcoin standard and better able to measure value in a way that's less likely to be misleading. So what can I do about it now? I can tell people about this new technology, this new system, explain to them why it's important, 
and encourage them to DCA with their paychecks, which is what I do myself and what I encourage everyone else to do. And you can send them a Bitcoin with Jake episode. Really top it up. Or, or so, be, even better, be part of a Bitcoin with Jake episode. <laughs> yeah. Well, come on, exactly. So <laughs> yeah. you mentioned that you're a bowel cancer surgeon. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So talk to talk specifically about that. The the rates of illness in what well in society around us today seems to be only increasing. And when you get close to Bitcoin as a subject, you know people start lifting weights and changing their diet and getting into all sorts of different stuff, and they kind of value their body differently. It's it's an amazing thing to witness. As someone who is highly expert at trying to solve a specific disease like bowel cancer just for a moment to take a slightly more macro view on health in general of populations how might that change with bitcoin and is there a different future ahead do you think yeah i mean there is a definite argument that not having sound money results in a warped time preference where you don't really care about what you're going to look like or what you're going to feel like in 50 years or 20 years or 10 years and so you're more likely to let yourself go, essentially. That's, that's the argument. The opposite side of the argument is if you had a low time preference and you're sort of looking to the future and going, I can save my money and my energy and my time. I should look after myself and be healthier. And so it does have this bizarre effect on people where you know, you're sort of, you start working out more and eating better. But once you have this understanding of delayed gratification and sound savings ability, you know, it's an amazing thing. As far as the health of the population, I think the issue is not so much that. I mean, that, that's, that's sort of a population health thing, fair enough. But I think a bigger problem is the fact that our healthcare systems are failing worldwide slowly. And the reason is because most of our socially funded systems are similarly failing slowly worldwide because our money is corrupted and failing slowly worldwide. So yeah. housing okay. is failing, welfare is failing, and healthcare is failing. The ability to deliver healthcare. And that's the thing that is more for me, is a more sort of immediate thing that I see in my life. I do agree with the population health aspect, but as a surgeon, because I'm sort of a more black and white person, you know, you see a problem, you fix it kind of person. The ability to pay for healthcare is a more, in my view, a more acute problem, although maybe not, not necessarily more important. There's another layer to it as well, is obviously the government debt. For most nations' ability to finance their debt, the costs of that are also going up. And mm -hmm. so... You know, there's a trade-off here. What do we want to pay for with this collapsing money system that we have? You know, it's like having a, you know, the melted ice cube thing, right? But you have to use that melted ice cube to water all your plants, right? Which plant do you prioritize while <laughs> the ice cube is melting in your hands, you know? That's really the current situation we are in. Now, in Australia and in sort of more developed nations, we're a little bit lucky in that we benefit from two things. One is we have this buffer that we've built up. But two, we kind of have the ability to lord it over countries that are less fortunate. And, you know, it's no surprise that every time there's a major catastrophe like this, there's some sort of world war and a reset. I know we, we've sort of mainly covered local health, but there is a global health problem looming, which is also one, I believe, mostly driven by, you know, financial repression and financial failures more than anything else. I'm intrigued to hear where um, that thought process takes us. Can you please explain that a bit further, Tarek? Because that sounds really interesting. Yeah, I mean, Alex Gladstein, you mentioned him before. He's talked a lot about this. But there's a lot of third world countries that have been financially repressed by more developed countries. And the way they do that is 
And, you know, Alex is sort of the expert in this area. I don't claim to be an expert, but I do understand it in some ways. Um, there are World Banks, the IMF and the World Bank specifically, that loan money out to developing nations with an agenda. Again, a system that's been designed with fundamental flaws that eventually get manipulated by human bias. And what ends up happening is those societies in the third world or in developing nations are repressed. And because they're repressed, their healthcare suffers because healthcare is one of the most acute ways that you feel it when you're poor, you know, mm -hmm. uh, life expectancy, that sort of thing. And I think as a doctor, my responsibility is not just to the humans that I meet day to day, it's to the humans I don't meet that I understand may have a better life and better healthcare if I make certain decisions, right? Mm. With my life. And I see, because of people like Gladstein and others, I see Bitcoin as a way to not just improve the way we measure healthcare in the West, but also to elevate the ability for people in developed nations to access better healthcare because of the removal of the financial repression imposed upon them by things like the IMF and the World Bank, who I don't believe are evil institutions. I just believe that they are a system that was designed at a time that's no longer relevant today and has a whole bunch of deleterious and negative side effects that we don't want. Negative externalities of the ability to print your own money, to then loan to whoever the counterparty might be. It's an incredible conversation, this, that I also, I'm no expert, but when you start looking into the mechanics of the whole thing, you're like, hang on, so said country in, for example, Africa, run by a dictator, takes money at a certain percentage for a fixed period of time. The money gets spent on all sorts of crap that no one ever fucking realizes was spent on, and most of it goes into old mate's back pocket and mm -hmm. a large infrastructure project of some form. And then before you know it, the, the loan's got to be paid back and there's no money to pay it back. And, oh, hey, Presto, let's give you another loan. Um, I've never read this book, but there's a book called The Confessions of an Economic Hitman that discusses this very, very closely. And I, it's reminded me I must get around to reading it because it goes into a lot of detail yeah. as to how this actually well, functions. I've got the underbanked issue, you know, the whole Global South issue that Ray Youssef talks about a lot, you know, the Paxful guy. There's a substantial proportion of the population that, you know, billions of people we're talking about here that don't actually have access to finance at all. So yeah. they're reliant on their government's paper money, which typically gets devalued at an extremely rapid rate over time, much more than we feel here in the West. Yeah. And they have no way out of it. You know, they don't have the ability to convert that to US dollar or anything else, generally speaking, or not easily anyway. And so I think Bitcoin solves that problem for those people. One of the reasons I understand this maybe a bit more is, you know, I have family that are still in Lebanon. Mm -hmm. I don't really visit there or anything. And it's not like I talk to them a lot or anything, but I, I understand that they've lost a considerable proportion of their savings repeatedly uh, due to the Lebanese lira, not the first time. It happened in the civil war a couple of decades ago, and it's happening again now. And because the government is corrupt and because the banks are, uh, they can be restricted quite heavily. You know, you're only allowed to take out a certain amount of US dollars a week, that sort of thing. They tend to lose their life savings and their life's energy. And that has direct impacts on their ability to access healthcare. You know, yeah, wow. which is usually the thing they want to pay for the most, along with food and energy. You know, those are the three basic things or four food, shelter, energy and healthcare. They're the sort of basic things that we need to live a reasonable life. Right. And without sound money or the ability to have access to sound money in the developing world or in places where the government's corrupt, healthcare suffers. And as a doctor, it is my responsibility 
to advocate against that and to find a solution that I can implement in my life that potentially could benefit others in their life. And I see Bitcoin as a very, very shining example of something like that. Putting flags up on Twitter and Facebook is one thing. Putting your money where your mouth is, literally, is another thing. Yeah. And so I would encourage anybody with any interest in global health to look at this further and see if their contribution to Bitcoin education and finance may actually result in a better world down the line, healthcare and otherwise. Well, Tarek, wonderfully explained. It's yet another kind of driver of future adoption that I see creating huge value because I know a number of doctors in my life and they all have very similar, as you mentioned already, kind of altruistic views. And the idea that they could actually help deliver healthcare to someone in a different part of the world by buying Bitcoin, they won't have ever heard that before. And actually, it's a view that I hadn't had posed to me either. So thank you for teaching me that. Um, no problem, well, Tarek, so just final question is, where can people reach you if, if they want to get in touch? Well, I'm on Twitter, like everybody else. I'm still on there. That's probably the easiest way, I would say. So feel free to follow me and DM me or whatever you want to do. I have a couple of talks on YouTube, but this is my first sort of long form podcast. So I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. And if I can help in any way, Bitcoin or otherwise, please reach out. And I look forward to seeing you all in Bitcoin Alive in April in Sydney. Awesome. Really well, Terry, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Ed. Okay, friends, nice work. You made it all the way to the end of the episode. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this conversation. As I said at the start, if you have any questions, then please don't hesitate to reach out. And if you enjoyed the episode, then please rate, like, subscribe, and share. That's it for now. Enjoy the rest of your day. All the best, Jake.